we like to honor noteworthy people or events or even sort of ideas by declaring a special day for that individual. If you look at your calendar, you'll see it seems like more and more of these things are popping up all the time, like certain kinds of days to honor or, or mark these things that we value. You can think of, of course, important historical figures and work that they've done, like Martin Luther King Jr. Day, day that we set aside to think upon and remember uh, his important work. President's Day, which I think is like the birthdays of Washington and Lincoln or something like that. I don't even remember exactly what it is. Uh, Columbus Day. Um, and, then, and then things like, okay, more general relationships, like Mother's Day. We want to honor uh, those who have given us life and, and those who are returning that uh, gift to others. Father's Day. Uh, there's even like Siblings Day. Yes, you see this on Facebook, right? You're like, oh, I didn't know there was a Siblings Day. I've been failing at that for all these years, right? Um, Eliza Doolittle Day. Just kidding. The Broadway fans in the room got that joke. Nobody else. Um, right, so, so there's all these days, right? We mark days. These are special people, special events we want to remember, we want to celebrate, we want to honor these things. And so we call it the day of so-and-so, right? Well, in biblical theology, there is one day so significant, so pregnant with historical importance and theological meaning that the Bible repeatedly designates it with a title, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And this special day is what Zechariah chapters 12 to 14 are all about. So in your Bible, turn to the book of Zechariah. Toward the back of the Old Testament, if you get to Matthew, you flip a little bit too far. Zechariah, one of the prophets of Israel in the period of time where the people have been in exile in Babylon for some 70 years. And now they've returned to the land and they've been rebuilding the temple. And Zechariah has been ministering God's word and strengthening the people. Uh, and we've covered all of this book except for these last three chapters. Uh, that we'll look at today. Last week, in chapters 9 through 11, we heard God's strong pronouncement of judgment against Israel's worthless shepherds, the spiritual leaders of his people who had abused and defrauded them, led them into idolatry, and sought their own greedy gain instead of Israel's good. And after that indictment, he also made a promise. He would send them a good shepherd. And not just any shepherd, but a shepherd king in the line of David. And this good shepherd would lay down his life for his sheep so that their sins might be forgiven and they might again find pasture and protection in the presence of God. And our text today, chapters 12 through 14, comprise the second and final oracle that Zechariah delivers to the people of Judah. And it concludes this prophetic book with a powerful word of hope. Here's the main idea of these three chapters. I'm going to give it to you in a couple of different ways. The pathway of God's people will be rocky, but he will bring them safely home. The pathway of God's people will be rocky, but he will bring them safely home. We're not promised smooth sailing. We're not promised easy seas. In fact, we're told, we're warned quite the opposite. There will be trouble. There will be trials. There will be oppression. But 
God will safely bring his people home. Another way to say that in relation to the day of the Lord motif that is so prevalent in this passage is that the day of the Lord will bring salvation to his people and judgment to their enemies. The day of the Lord will bring salvation to his people and judgment to their enemies. So those banners are sort of over this whole passage that we'll look at today. And that idea unfolds in three distinct movements, uh, indicating three specific ways that the day of the Lord will provide his people with salvation. Here's the first one. God defends his people. God defends his people. This is what we see in chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to read those verses for you right now. So follow along in your copy of the Bible. I'll read verses 1 through 9 of chapter 12. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold... I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place, in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now, you might have noticed this already, but the phrase on that day occurs over and over in this passage. In fact, in these three chapters, chapters 12 through 14, you see it 14 times on that day. There is an unmistakable future orientation to this oracle. The prophecies of, the, of the, the, the men of God who spoke his word to them often, usually, had some more immediate historical fulfillment. And that could indeed be the case with this day of the Lord prophecy as well. But it is unmistakable that there is a fuller and future uh, fulfillment of the, these prophecies that are yet to come. This is looking way past the end of, uh, or way past the, the sort of ancient history of Israel to a coming Day. It refers, in the words of uh, commentator Anthony Pedersen, to the day when the Lord will establish his kingdom on earth in glory. So it's not merely looking at the earthly glory of Jerusalem in Zechariah's day. It's looking at the future kingdom that will come in its fullness on the earth. And indeed, the day of the Lord is a prominent theme 
in the prophets. You read about it in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Joel, Micah. Virtually all of the prophets say something about the day of the Lord. And some of them speak about it repeatedly. And it's referenced multiple times in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where Paul warns or encourages people not to be surprised at the coming of the day of the Lord, when he comes like a thief in the night. That's a day of the Lord reference. You see it again in Revelation chapter 6 and chapter 16, which probably isn't surprising. And the oracle is, note, concerning Israel. We saw in chapter 9 that 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 oracle began with this very same phrase, the word of the oracle of the word of the Lord. And that occurs again in chapter 12, verse 1. So this is a second distinct oracle. And this time it says the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And that's noteworthy after the breaking of union in chapter 11. Remember, Zechariah sort of symbolically had the staff that he named favor and one that he called union. And he broke the staff called Union, indicating the division of the the nation of Israel into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, right? So there was this division that, by God's judgment, had come upon the nation. And here, the, the oracle is concerning Israel, which indicates Israel and Judah's uh, union again, right? The, the oracle points forward to a time when the tribes of Israel will again be united under their shepherd king. So keep in mind this future orientation, this final day, day of the Lord motif as we walk through these verses. So a few things to note uh, under the banner of God defending his people. First of all, there's a war against Jerusalem. There's a war. You see that in verse 2? It says the siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. Judah just being the surrounding area, right? So bigger than just the city of Jerusalem, the whole nation, the whole uh, region, and all the peoples and clans comprising that. The, the siege of Jerusalem is going to be this big uh, attack, right? This big of- offense against all of Judah. And verse 3, all the nations of the earth will gather against it, right? So this is a big battle, right? This is one of those epic war scenes. If you Watch Lord of the Rings or 300 or whatever, all these like big battle movies, right? You envision giant hosts of armies on one side of a field and giant hosts of armies on the other side of the field and they're running at each other. Ah, what's going to happen, right? Then you're ready for this like bloody scene. So you almost have that kind of image here where he's talking about all of the nations are going to gather against Jerusalem and Judah. So actually that movie scene, you have to edit a little bit with one side having hosts of armies and big strong horses and crazy armor and all these weapons and then you've got Jerusalem over here which is like small and under equipped and ill prepared for this battle it looks obvious clearly these giant strong armies are going to destroy Jerusalem however they hadn't factored in one particular detail Yahweh fights for his people Yahweh fights for his people look in verse 2 He says, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to the nations, perhaps indicating the effect of strong drink. There will be confusion and staggering and sort of chaos because of Jerusalem. So these enemies are coming against Jerusalem and instead of their clear victory, they're going to be left sort of dazed and confused and and staggering. 
I will make, verse 3, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and whoever lifts it will hurt themselves. I can feel that. You ever try to lift something that's a little bit too heavy? Yeah, I got this. Go! Something gave, right? Uh, that's what's going to happen. So when they try to lift Jerusalem, that is to take over them, to siege them, to harm them, God is going to make it so that they actually end up hurting themselves instead of hurting the people of God. Well, how's he going to do this? Look at verse 4. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. There's confusion among themselves. They're not even going to know which way they're going. For the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. I'm watching them. But the horses of the peoples will be struck blind and there will be madness among its riders. Now, interestingly, this sort of madness of the rider and blindness of the horse is listed in Deuteronomy 28 as one of the curses of covenant disobedience to Israel. And here it's applied to their enemies. Verse 6, he says, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood. What happens with a blazing pot when you put it on wood? The wood goes, the wood catches fire. And like a flaming torch among sheaves. What happens when you take a torch to the dry sheaves of grain? It ignites, right? So Jerusalem is going to be among these nations who are oppressing them like something that starts a big fire really quickly. All right, there's going to ignite them. And then that's all uh, in verse 8. He says, on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them shall be like David. You know, David, the mighty man of war, David who killed the giant with just a stone, right? Who fought lions with his bare hands. The feeblest person, the weakest person among Jerusalem is going to be like that. And verse 9 sort of summarizes it all. On that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. You can't miss the point here. God defends his people. God fights their battles for them. Though they are oppressed and opposed, they will ultimately be victorious over their enemies because God will defeat them on their behalf. Now, there's the obvious question here of like, is this a real battle or is it symbolic of something, right? Is there, do we really expect at the sort of end of history there will be this actual gathering of armies and this huge slugging it out uh, and all these horses that are struck with blindness and all this? Or is this a real, literal thing? Well, given the future orientation that on that day that keeps repeating itself, it seems best to view this prophecy as an Old Testament precursor to the multiple depictions in the book of Revelation of a climactic end times battle where the Lord Jesus, upon his return to the earth, strikes down all the wicked and ushers his church into their eternal home. I don't necessarily think we need to regard that as a literal battle where there's like political forces that are all gathering against Jerusalem. I don't necessarily think that Jerusalem is going to become the center stage of all of the sort of global uh, uh, maneuvering. I think the point is Christ will come and he will defeat the enemies of his people throughout history. He will judge the wicked. He will usher in salvation for his people. So the battle is probably not a literal siege of Jerusalem, but a symbolic image of the world's opposition to Christ and his kingdom and the ultimate victory that he will finally achieve over them.
God defends his people. So when we're trying to figure out, well, what does this mean for us? How, how do we apply this idea to us? We, we have to kind of ask, who are the enemies of God's people today? Right? Who are the chief opponents of the church and of individual Christians in the day in which we live? What battles might it be that God is fighting for us? It's easy to get our eye sort of focused on the, the earthly, temporal battles where the, the anger is high and the voices are loud and we follow political pundits and talk show hosts and we think, oh, the enemies are our political uh, opponents or our ideological opponents or whatever the case may be. And we think to win the battle means to, to wage some kind of cultural war. I think that would be a distraction. I think Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 summarizes well for us the, the enemies uh, that we face in the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, what does that mean? The world is the systems of godless belief and perverted values that define the world apart from Christ. The ideologies of self-definition and self-expression. The exaltation of sexual identity and gratification as the sort of pinnacle of human freedom. The greedy quest for material wealth and prosperity. These are the things that characterize the age. Right? This is the, this is the, the values, the, 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 the beliefs of the world. And there is a... There can be a siren call in those things, even for the church, even for a Christian. We can think those things are important. We can come to, to look at the wrong thing. So one of our enemies that we have to fight against and we trust the Lord to fight for us is, is the world. These godless systems of value and belief. The second one is the flesh. The flesh. Now that's not literal, like uh, what is material is bad. Uh, and human bodies are evil, what it means is our own indwelling sin. Right? It, it's the inclinations toward forbidden things, toward forbidden fruit, if you will, that lies deep within our hearts and our own weakness in fighting against temptation. One of our greatest enemies is our own flesh because we want what we're not supposed to have. We desire and crave that which God has told us is forbidden and is actually harmful to us. And so we fight against our own flesh. And finally, the devil. We fight against the devil. We're told throughout the scriptures that he is like a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He throws fiery darts of shame and accusation at believers all day long. He wants you to be trapped in a pit of despair and guilt and shame. I am so broken and useless. God can't possibly forgive me. God can't possibly use me. He just throws up our own sins in our face over and over again. This is the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And here's the thing. God, in Christ, has defeated all these foes. And he's with us in the day-to-day -day struggles to provide mercy and grace to help in time of need, Hebrews 4.16. In the day of trouble, beneath the weight of temptation, may we say with the clans of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. God defends his people. 
The second movement of this passage, the second way in which we see the day of the Lord providing salvation is that God cleanses his people. God cleanses his people. We're going to look at chapter 12, verse 10 through chapter 13, verse 9. All right, so follow along with me, beginning in chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. This is all about God's cleansing of his people. And you see, the first thing that he says is that God will grant repentance. God grants repentance. In verse 10 of chapter 12, he said, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Now, the word spirit is the Hebrew ruach, which can be wind or spirit, and it can refer in different contexts to a disposition, sort of the inner attitude, the spirit of something. Or it can refer to the person of, the spirit of God. And I think given the day of the Lord language, and considering the way that the prophets connect the pouring out of the spirit of God on the day of salvation, especially in Joel chapter 2, perhaps this is not just a disposition of repentance that God grants, but it is a foretelling of the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell his people, to convict them of sin, to lead them to repentance. Either way, whether it's this disposition that leads them toward repentance or it's the future indwelling of the Holy Spirit, 
Uh, either way, note that it is God who enables people to turn to him in repentance and faith. It is God's work. He grants them repentance. And that's consistent with the teaching of the New Testament as well. In 1 Timothy 2, 25, Paul urges Timothy to be gentle with when he confronts his opponents because, quote, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Notice he doesn't say they might come to know the truth and then repent. He says God might grant them repentance that leads them to a knowledge of the truth. Romans 2, 4 tells us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Jesus himself said in John 16, 8 of the Holy Spirit that he would convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So first thing to see is repentance is granted by God. It's a gift that God must give by his spirit to a sinner. Well, when God grants repentance, what does it look like? Well, the picture we get of it here is that repentance looks like deep mourning over sin. It looks like weeping and wailing. The middle part of verse 10 there of chapter 12, he says, When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. I have no other child. The child has died, and this legacy and this hope is cut off. That's the kind of mourning that he says the people of Israel will have when they look on the one whom they have pierced. And him whom they have pierced in this verse is is Yahweh himself, the one who has loved them, protected them, and blessed them with his presence, and whom they have repeatedly despised, rejected, and belittled with constant rebellion and idolatry. And when the Spirit of God brings awareness that they have pierced their king with their sin and disobedience, they will wail and cry out in sorrow. This is what repentance will look like. I wonder when is the last time you wept over your sin? When's the last time I wept over my sin? Not merely at its consequences in your life or even at the pain that it caused another person that you're close to, but simply the recognition that you have broken the heart of your God. May the Lord, by his Spirit, grant us such a posture of godly sorrow and repentance for our sin. This must be a gift given by the Lord. The next thing we see in this passage is that repentance is answered with cleansing. Repentance is answered with cleansing. Look at the beginning of chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Here's a gospel truth you can take to the bank. Repentance before God is always met with mercy. Always. Repentance is always met with mercy. That's the economy of the gospel. When sinners draw near to God in repentance, he welcomes them. He has mercy on them. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, which some of us have been reading together, Dane Ortland speaks of the heart of Jesus Christ for his people. And here's what he says about how Jesus responds to a penitent sinner coming to him. He does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness for renewed pardon, 
with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. When we turn to him in repentance, he welcomes us with mercy every time. Friends, don't be afraid to draw near to God with your failures and sins. Your confession and honesty about your brokenness and your need do not repel him. They draw his heart to you all the more in kindness and mercy. God grants repentance to his people. That repentance leads them to bitter sorrow over sin, which in turn draws out God's forgiving, cleansing grace. But there's an essential component in that story, a central figure who plays an indispensable role in opening the fountain of cleansing that he speaks of in chapter 13.1. And I'm guessing you may have noticed him as we read through those verses just now. The pierced shepherd. The pierced shepherd. Back in chapter 12, verse 10, he says, I will pour out on the house of David and the house of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him. On him whom they have pierced. Of course, there's that general sense in which their God is the one they have pierced by their rebellion and by their disobedience. But there's a more literal way that this language and this prophecy seems to be fulfilled in the New Testament. In John 19, when Jesus hung on the cross, having taken his last breath and given up his spirit, a Roman soldier came to him and pierced Jesus' side with a spear so that we're told blood and water flowed from that wound, from his body. And then John tells us in John 19, 37, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. They will look on him whom they have pierced. And he quotes Zechariah twelve ten. Him whom they have pierced is Jesus the shepherd who has given his life for their sins. In Revelation 1, verse 7, in the introduction to that great prophetic book concerning the return of the Lord to his people, we're told, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. A clear reference to Zechariah 12, 10. There's the piercing of the one who is coming on the clouds, namely Jesus, and there's the wailing of the nations. Perhaps this is a wailing of repentance and sorrow over their piercing. It seems that in Revelation 1, there may also be a glimmer of the wailing of the enemies of God who recognize that their judgment has come. So perhaps there's a dual meaning there. But the language of Zechariah 12.10 is picked up by the Apostle John, both in his Gospel and in his Apocalypse from the Isle of Patmos. And clearly, in the Holy Spirit-inspired understanding of John, Zechariah's prophesied shepherd, who would be pierced by his own people, was fulfilled in the death of Jesus for the sins of his own. The pierced shepherd is none other than Jesus Christ, who, from Zechariah's writing and announcing, was yet to come. But from our vantage point, has already come once and will yet come again. 
Look again at chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. He speaks here of how the people's striking of their shepherd, that is their rejection of God himself as their king, would lead to their discipline, their, tempor- their temporary forfeiture of God's divine favor and blessing. Right? He says, I will turn my hand against the little ones. Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. One-third shall be left alive and refined. Right? So this is God's judgment, probably in the exile in Babylon, that we're speaking of. Strike the shepherd, the people will be scattered. But again, fast forward to the night of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 and following, Jesus is warning his disciples of the coming trouble that they will face when he is gone. And indeed, of the ways they will fail him in the hour of his suffering. And in Matthew 26, 31, he tells them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. It's the language of Zechariah 13.7, and it's applied not only generally to the people's rebellion against God and the way that he would scatter them among the nations, but specifically to the way that the, the, the disciples of Jesus would flee in fear and would deny him, that they even knew him, and at the moment of his suffering would be scattered. Why is this so important? You see, God's fountain of cleansing and forgiveness is opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the striking down of the shepherd. It is the blood of Jesus Christ, the shepherd whom God sent to his people, whom they rejected and dishonored, whom they ultimately condemned to death on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem that covers the sins and disobedience of his people. God grants forgiveness and grace to those who repent of their sins. Why? Because their atonement has been purchased by the blood of his own son, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. As the old hymn says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Oh, friend, Come to Jesus in repentance. Trust upon his atoning blood poured out for you and find the fountain of cleansing grace open for you now and forever. God cleanses his people. The final movement of this oracle and indeed the conclusion of Zechariah's book in chapter 14 shows us that God dwells with his people. God dwells with his people. I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 14. It's 21 verses long, so bear with me. And I want you to note, as I've said, I said earlier that on that day occurs some 17 times in these three chapters. Seven of those times are in chapter 14, just over and over and over on that day. So keep in mind that clearly future orientation toward that last day as we read. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. 
For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. That's a lot. We don't have time to hover over many details in this chapter. So let me just draw out a few major points of observation. Number one, God will win our victory. God will win our victory. You see this over and over in this chapter, verse 3. Yahweh will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Down in verse 5, you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. Right? So he's creating this place of safety for them to flee to. Come to my mountains, come to my valley while I fight against your enemies. 
verse 12, the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples. He talks about this rotting flesh. The flesh will rot while they stand, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Very gory image. But God is striking the enemies of his people with these plagues. And then chapter or verse 13 in that same context says that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them so that each will seize the hand of the other. They're fighting against each other. There's confusion, right? And so the, the people will plunder them, right? It says you'll take uh, from them the wealth of all the nations, gold, silver, garments, and great abundance, right? So God will win the victory for God's people, right? God will win a victory. Second thing notice. God will usher in a new era of eternal rest. I don't know about you, but that sounds really good. A new era of eternal rest. In verse 6, he says, On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. In other words, you haven't known a day like this before. It's a day that you will only know when the Lord ushers in this final full kingdom. And it's a day when there's light in the evening. When you expect it to be dark, there's just light that continues. What about you? That reminds me of Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, where we're told of that final resting place of God's people. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. In verse 8, we're told that living waters will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea, half to the western sea. In other words, all of the earth will be watered by the streams of living water flowing out from Jerusalem. Provision, refreshment, life, and perhaps even more specifically, Jesus, when he speaks of living waters flowing out of the hearts of his people, is referring specifically to the Holy Spirit to the coming and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So perhaps there's the, aware, or the, the image here of, of the presence of the, the Spirit of God. Verses 10 and 11, he says, the whole land shall be turned into a plain. What does that mean? It means where the land had been treacherous and craggy and mountainous, it's, it's made smooth. It's, it's made easy. It's made plain. Jerusalem, oh, look at this. This is beautiful down in verse 11. It shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. The city of God, the place where he finally dwells with his people, will be safe forever. The enemies, the opposition, the oppression, the difficulties that we know in this life will be over. And notice the nations are welcome to participate in this too. The ones who aren't destroyed in the battle, right? It says the ones who survive of all the nations in verse 16 uh, will go up year after year to worship the king, Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And so there's even the sense of, of the, the wideness of God's invitation. It's not just the people of Israel. It, it's, it's a boundless call. Any who will draw near to God in faith and humility and worship him he will welcome, right? And then he promises hardship and discipline to those who will not heed this invitation. That's what verses 17 to 19 are all about. If you won't come and worship, and in the language and the system, of course, of, of ancient Israel, the, the notion of keeping the Feast of Booths and going to Jerusalem 
for, for that, uh, that festival uh, is how that's termed. But I think what this means is those who will not draw near to God in faith and worship him will receive not his blessing, but his curse. And that's very true. Those who will not repent of their sins and trust in Christ for salvation and draw near to him on his terms will not receive this mercy, will not receive this future of rest and peace and security. And then the final thing to see in this chapter is that God will draw near to his people. God will draw near. Verse 5, the, the, the last part of that verse, we're told, the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. We're told in verse 9 that Yahweh will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The Lord has always been one. His name has always been one. But at this point, everybody knows it. There's no opponent. There's no disagreement. God is king. He reigns without an opponent. And verse 21, down at the very end of this chapter, where he says, All who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord on that day. Now, this is, might sound a little strange to us, but this is concerning the spread of holiness. This is concerning the purity of the people of God and this place of their final dwelling. So if you, if you consider what he lists out there, you're, you're seeing things that have been declared as holy, for, for the, consecrated for, for the worship of God, uh, contrasted with that which has been common and, and profane and unclean. And the, the cleanness, the holiness is, is spreading. So it starts by saying that there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. Now that is an inscription that the high priest had on his turban. Holy to the Lord, because he's the one that was entering God's presence to represent the people before him. And that inscription of holiness, of dedicated, consecrated to the Lord, extends down to the bells of the horses, which is probably a war image. So even the things that are used in this day, in this fallen world, for battle and for destruction, will be repurposed and re-consecrated as holy to the Lord. Holiness has spread from the priesthood all the way down into the implements of war. Secondly, he talks about the bowls of, uh, before the altar. The pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. The, the bowls uh, before the altar were, were, were holy, right? They were used for, uh, for incense and, uh, and as part of these worship rituals. And now he's saying that all of the pots, the sort of common pots in the temple, will be just as holy as that that bowl before the altar. And it goes even farther than that. Not just the the pots in the house of the Lord that is in the temple, but all the pots, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. All the pots. So all across the land, every sort of common vessel, common instrument has now been consecrated to the Lord. And so what's the result of that? Everyone can make sacrifice to God. Right? Under the old covenant system, Somebody else had to do that for you. The priest, the high priest had to represent you and make a sacrifice on your behalf. Not so in this coming kingdom. Everyone will have his own pot, as it were, that's consecrated to God. And he can boil his own sacrifice of worship to God. He doesn't need a mediator. 
There's nothing in between us and God. There's nothing to be purified from. There's no uncleanness in the final city of God. And so when he says there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of Yahweh, I think he's referring there to, to Gentiles who would enter the temple for business purposes. All right? And you see Jesus get really angry about that uh, on Palm Sunday where he enters the, the temple and there's all these traitors and money changers and he flips over tables and all that, right? So this is, I think, what's kind of referred to there. It's those who would be doing business in the, the house of God. Well, no more. The temple will be a fit place for God to dwell with his people forever in holiness and peace. And guess what? That temple is everywhere. That temple is the new creation. It is the city where God will dwell with his people. The Lord defends his people. The Lord cleanses his people. The Lord dwells with his people. And this is what we have to look forward to. When the day of the Lord comes, we will find ourselves safe on the other side of war, the other side of anxiety, of sorrow, of loneliness, the other side of sin, the other side of death. Speaking of that day, Isaiah 2.17 says, The haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. There's a couple of ways that the pride of man will be brought low. The pride of man will be brought low in the divine judgment that befalls those who reject Christ and oppose his church. The pride of man will be brought low in the salvation of those who turn to Christ in faith, wholly by grace, not by their own merit. And the Lord alone will be exalted, for it is only his wrath that brings destruction to the wicked, and it's only his grace that brings salvation to the righteous. Let us, brothers and sisters, long for that great and glorious day. And let us live each day in its light until our God gathers us to himself and will dwell with him forever in a renewed, restored creation at peace under the good rule of Jesus Christ, our shepherd and king. Let's pray.